Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today is Proverbs 29, verse 2, which is slightly different than the bulletin, so it's 29, verse 2. Let's read that together. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Even though the presidential elections are more than seven months behind us, the political rancor rages on. We are very much under the chastisement of God, and it would be wise for us to consider the wisdom from the book of Proverbs as we pray about what we are supposed to do. Righteousness at the top matters. Unrighteousness at the top matters. The people rejoice when they are ruled in wisdom by those who know what righteousness is and who embrace it. When the wicked rule, which they usually want to do, the people suffer and mourn. While blessings flow to the people from the top, as our text says, it's also the case that God's assigns rule that is consistent with the character of the people. A degenerate people at the bottom are not usually going to find upright leaders at the top. Righteousness is a characteristic, or not, of people, of a nation. The scriptures use this adjective to describe the people generally. Not every single individual, but people generally. And when righteousness is valued by a people, then the king's favor is directed towards the wise and away from the shameless. So we see that when the wise rules, the people rejoice. We also see that when the people are righteous, the nation is exalted, in part because of the kind of rulers that this results in. Further, when the people are given over to transgression, the result is political upheaval. Proverbs 28.2 says, When a land transgresses, transgresses, it has many rulers. But with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. So we see that political stability and orderly transitions of power are not automatic. In short, there's an important interplay between the righteousness of the people in the street and the righteousness on the throne. You cannot have one without the other. This means that we get the kind of leadership that we deserve. And when we pray, we must do so knowing that our deliverance is only from the Lord. He can deliver us. He's the only one who can. What is happening to us is bad, but God has good reasons for it. Make no mistake, if, he, if it continues, it's because God wants it to continue. If we want to find out why he wants us to continue, the fastest way to discover it is through repentance. Please kneel where you are. The sermon this morning is out of Ephesians 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 24, but we're really going to be zeroing in on verse 18 and Paul's exhortation to pray, and we're going to be considering how his exhortation to pray ties into his broader discussion on spiritual warfare, because Paul's point in this passage is that if you do not pray, 
you will be weak. You will not be able to effectively engage in the spiritual combat that all believers are subject to because we live in a fallen world. So let's listen to what the Holy Spirit says to us through his servant Paul. Please listen carefully. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what, and what I am doing Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, in love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Saints, this is the word of God. Now, Many of us, most of us, are familiar with this passage. It's Ephesians 6. Most of us learn this passage either when we're growing up, it's taught to us by our parents, or we learn it shortly after coming to faith in Christ. Because we realize being a Christian involves spiritual warfare. We realize that we are facing what Paul describes as the powers of darkness and the heavenly realms. These are our enemies, and they are out to get us, and we are out to, to uh, defeat them in the name of Jesus and to destroy the works of the devil in his name as well. And so realizing that we are engaged in the spiritual battle as Christians, we pay attention to Ephesians 6, and you see a lot of attention given to the full armor of God, as Paul describes it here. And I certainly did preach a whole series on the full armor of God, but this morning I want to zero in, as I said on the, at the introduction on verse 18, on Paul's exhortation to pray at all times. I think when we think about spiritual warfare and the combat we engage in as Christians with the powers of darkness, it's easy for us to pay a lot of attention to the rest of the components of the full armor of God while neglecting prayer. I won't ask you, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'll tell you that prayer is very easy for me to neglect. Very easy for me to neglect. And if I'm honest with why I don't pray as often as I should, I could say it's a lack of self-discipline and it's this and it's that and I'm busy and so on and so forth. But in the end, really, 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 the reason why I neglect prayer is because of unbelief. You realize that? Because if I truly believed that prayer worked, I would do it all the time. I would pray without ceasing. And so when I neglect prayer... It's because I don't really think it's worth my time. That hurts to admit. It really does. But we've got to be honest with ourselves. We've got to be honest with ourselves. Why don't I pray more? Because I don't believe it. And I'm not saying, doesn't mean you're not a Christian and you don't believe the gospel. That's not my point. My point is, as we are duplicitous sinners, and we can, on the one hand, truly love the Lord Jesus and know him and believe his word, and at the other time, hardly ever pray. Because we don't see the necessity of it. 
Am I into something or am I off base? What do you think? All right. I see some nods and grins. It assures me that I'm not the only guy in the room who finds it easy to neglect prayer. That would be okay, but I don't suspect that that's the case. Now, it's interesting and it's important for us to notice that Paul is concluding all of his instructions on spiritual warfare, which he took very seriously. You consider the amount of time he gives it here in Ephesians. He wants us to realize you are engaged in combat, spiritual combat. And in order to engage in that combat, you can't fight like flesh and blood because the nature of our enemy is not flesh and blood. The nature of our enemy is spiritual. It's worse, really. It's more insidious than flesh and blood. Physical combat, you can see your enemy, you can deal with them on the spot. Right? When it comes to our spiritual enemy, he's invisible, he's crafty, he is smarter than us, and he is an expert at outwitting us. He knows how to pull one over on us all the time. That's why prayer is so important, and that's why Paul bookends all of his instruction on spiritual warfare with an exhortation to pray. And here, of course, Paul is echoing the same exhortation he gave to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Same emphasis here. And what this tells us, the fact that Paul is bookending his discussion of spiritual warfare with an exhortation to pray, he's telling us that prayer is absolutely critical to standing against the powers of darkness. You see that earlier in chapter Paul. Paul says it twice. He's being emphatic. Repetition implies that he's being emphatic. He says, stand on the evil day. Put on the full armor of God so that you may stand and not be moved in that battle. And if you're going to stand, you must pray. If you don't pray, you will not be able to stand. That's the message Paul is giving us here. If you're going to withstand the powers of darkness, you have to be a prayer warrior. Oh, it makes my skin crawl to use that term because it's such a cliche and it's thrown around and put up on church signs, prayer warrior. Prayer. Yes, I know, but it's the truth, saints. It's the truth. As much as that phrase, that title has been turned into a cliche, it is true nonetheless. Yes, we must be prayer warriors and we must view prayer as combat, as strengthening us, as emboldening us as empowering us to stand against the powers of darkness. So a question that I want to tackle this morning here when we're gathered together as the Lord's corporate people, I want to tackle this question. What role does prayer play in spiritual warfare? It's easy for me to stand up here and say, you need to pray because you need to be a prayer warrior. And that, you know, oh, Nate, that's a great bumper sticker. That's making a t-shirt out of that. Wonderful. But we have to get beyond the cliche, and we need to get into the biblical teaching. Why is prayer critical to standing against the powers of darkness? Why must I pray? Don't just tell me I ought to pray. I already know that. Some of us have known that since we were this high. Why do I need to pray? Why is it critical to standing against wickedness? Well, the implication becomes clear when we look earlier on in chapter 6 and verse 10. 
where Paul offers this exhortation. He says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Notice what Paul is doing there when he says that in Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. What Paul is telling us in Ephesians 6.10 is you can't win this fight in your own strength. You can't win it by your own intellect. You can't win it by your own doctrinal understanding. You can't win it by an appeal to your own holiness of life. If you look to yourself to, to gain success and victory in spiritual combat and standing against the forces of evil, you are going to lose every single time. Why? Because you are a creature. You are a man. You are a woman. You're a fallen son or daughter of Adam as much as I am. And what does the serpent do? with us fallen children of Adam. He wipes the floor with us. That's what he does. He's been doing it since Eden, hasn't he? He knows how to push our buttons and pull our strain and to have his way with us. He knows how to use our strength against us, actually. And that's why Paul says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Christian, do not rely on yourself. Do not rely on your own resources. Do not rely on your own strength. Because if you do, you will fall, you will fail, you will lose, you will not stand. You must be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. This raises a question. When Paul said be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, did he, did he mean try harder? Did he mean just grit your teeth even more? That's what it means. Be even stronger. No, of course that's not what Paul meant. He's saying, be strong, depend on God, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. That raises the question, how, Paul? How can I be strong in the Lord and the power of His might? How does one do that? Because when you tell me to be strong as a guy, as a dude, my thought is, go to the gym, start pumping iron, right? Look what our own soldiers do from, in our own nation. If they want to become good warriors, they go and they shoot, they practice, they go through drills, right? They become strong. They become savvy. They become good soldiers. That's not what Paul means here. He says you can't rely on your own strength. Despair of your own strength. Despair of your own gifts. Despair of your own ability. It's a, they're of no help to you in this battle. You need to be strong in the Lord. So don't look to yourself. Look to God. Look to God. Look to Christ as your strength. And be strong in Him. How? The answer is given to us right here in verse 18. Through prayer. Do you see that connection, saints? It ties everything together. How can I, as a Christian, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might? The answer, the first answer, is prayer. By going to God in faith and asking for His help and asking for His strength and confessing my weakness, confessing my need for His grace, asking for His guidance and His wisdom. So it is through prayer that we are strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Now, if you don't pray, are you going to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might? No. What you are going to be is a self-reliant Christian who is going to be susceptible to falling prey to the schemes of the enemy because you are not strong, even though you think you may be. You are actually very weak. And the reason why you're weak is because you are depending upon your frail and pitiful abilities rather than depending upon the power of God. You see the connection. You have to pray. I have to pray. If I'm going to be able to stand against the powers of darkness, I absolutely must pray. If I'm, if I'm not praying, this always says, emblazon this upon your memory. If you are not 
making a habit of prayer, you are relying on your own strength. That is automatic, necessary, inescapable. If you are not praying, you are self-reliant. Guilty. Guilty. And when I find myself falling into sin, when I find myself struggling with faith and falling into unbelief and a bad attitude, and I just want to give up, and what's the point, and so on and so forth, I ask myself, Nate, have you been praying? What's the answer? No. Well, why not? Well, because God's just going to do whatever he wants, whatever I say. Is that what Scripture says? Scripture says, pray, Nate. You haven't been praying. And lo and behold, you're now weak. And you're now falling into sin. Do you see the connection? And I guarantee the same is true for you. If you were to ask yourself, when you start to fall into sin, and it begins to take root in your relationships, and you realize that you are not standing like you ought to be against the powers of darkness, observe your life, examine it, and I would guess that you're neglecting prayer. That you're awfully self-reliant rather than dependent upon the Lord and His might. How does prayer strengthen us? That's a question. I want to spell that out for you a little bit this morning. How does prayer strengthen us? Notice two things in verse 18. It's important for us to understand that. So it's more than a cliche. That's how these things become more than cliches to us, when we actually understand them. How does prayer strengthen us? Two things in verse 18. First, here's the first thing. Paul says that we are to pray at all times in the Spirit. That's key. Paul said that for a reason. We are to pray at all times in the Spirit. Now, when I was young, a young believer, I ran around among some charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters, and they understood that in a very particular, and I would have to say, erroneous way, what it means to pray in the Spirit. That's not what Paul is getting at, the way that our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers would understand it. I, th- I think that they are mistaken in their understanding. So I want to give you what I believe is the biblical answer to that question. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Paul tells us to do it, right? So what does it mean to obey Paul, to obey the Spirit, pray in the Spirit? Okay, how? How does one do that? Does it mean gritting my teeth? Does it mean trying harder? No, it doesn't. It means dependency. Praying in the Spirit means dependency. Let me read a passage to you. It's going to be a passage that many of you are familiar with. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 27. This is getting at what it means to pray in the Spirit. Listen to what Paul writes there. This is Romans 8, 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us In our weakness. Thank God. Because I have a lot of that. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. With groanings too deep for words. Any of you ever prayed like that before? And he who searches hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Just stop for a moment, because Paul is saying something so amazing to us here. And so, I will actually say, wildly encouraging when it comes to prayer. Listen again 
The Spirit helps us in the weakness, in our weakness. So what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? It means to pray in dependency upon the Holy Spirit, acknowledging our need for His help. So by praying in the Spirit, it means we are placing our faith in God's strength rather than relying upon our own strength. Why is that so important? Why is what Paul is telling us here about the Spirit's intercession on our behalf so important to us? Well, because it assures us of this, saints, that when we pray as believers who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, of course, and are indwelt and sealed by the Spirit of God, we're being assured here by Paul that when we pray, there are no barriers between us and God. We know that our Lord Jesus has broken down the barrier of sin. When he cried out, it is finished, that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two. Which means, according to the book of Hebrews, we can now enter in with boldness to the throne room of grace to find help in time of need. Hallelujah. That barrier has been removed. What other barrier has been removed? Barrier has been removed. My weakness. My own ignorance. My inability to know what to pray for. See, what the Holy Spirit does for you and does for me when we pray in the Spirit to God is He takes our requests and He makes sense out of them. This assures us that when we go to God in prayer, we don't necessarily need to say the right things. It's not a matter of a formula. It's not a matter of knowing exactly what to ask for. Because frankly, more often than not, in this fallen world of ours and the situations that we face as Christians, half the time we have no idea what's going on. And we know we ought to pray, but we don't know what on earth to pray for. And so that can become a discouragement to prayer. Because we feel like, well, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to ask God. Paul is saying here, pray at all times in the Spirit, meaning when you don't know what you should pray for, pray anyway. Cry out to God. You can even just groan. And the Holy Spirit, by interceding for you, because He knows the mind of God, will ensure that that prayer arises before God as a request. And God will honor your dependency upon His grace. He will hear you, even when you don't know how to pray. So your praying, and God hearing your prayers, and hearing my prayers, doesn't depend upon the prayer even being intelligible, necessarily. Especially in those stressful moments we face. It simply depends upon your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It depends upon your dependency upon the intercession of the Spirit. Trusting that God will do as He, as he has promised. That His Spirit will intercede for you. Isn't that a great encouragement to pray? To know that I don't have to be good enough when I come before God? That I don't have to use many words like the pagans do? And impress God with my verbiage? And my syntax and my grammar and my Bible knowledge, I don't have to impress him. I am simply his child crying out to my father, Father, help. And through the Spirit, he hears me. Even when I don't know what I'm asking for, the Spirit knows what I'm asking for. And that request goes to the Father. And he knows what I'm asking him to do. Saints, you see that? Pray. Pray trusting in the Spirit's intercession for you, knowing that He will make sense out of your prayers on your behalf 
so that God hears them and responds. Even when you don't know what it is you're asking for. You're simply coming before the throne of grace like the book of Hebrews tells you to do and saying, Father, help. I don't know how or what, but help. And he hears. And he answers. Because the Spirit intercedes for you. So what does that tell you? It means just pray. Pray at all times. Pray in dependency upon the Spirit of all times. It means don't overthink it. I'm an overthinker. Right? What am I going to pray for? How am I going to work this out? What plan am I going to recommend that God follow? As uh, You ever do that before? Lord, here's what I think ought to happen, and I think you ought to arrange things like this. Don't have to do any of that. You just flee before the Father in childlike faith, ask for His help, and the Spirit will intercede on your behalf. Now, I also want to assure you of this, that our enemy seeks to discourage you from prayer. The reason why he seeks to discourage us from prayer is because our enemy knows that we are strengthened by the very might of God when we pray, and he wants us to be weak and feeble, relying on our own strength rather than relying on the might of God, because then we're easy pickings, then we're soft targets for him, when we're not depending upon God, but are depending upon ourselves instead. And I think this is one of the reasons why in verse 18, Paul also tells us that we must keep alert with all perseverance. Keep alert with all perseverance. Alert for what? Alert to the schemes of our enemy. Allowing ourselves to be lulled into a sense of self-sufficiency that allows us to neglect prayer. And self-sufficiency is really one of our enemy's greatest weapons, one of his greatest schemes. We think of what kinds of schemes the devil uses to come against Christ and his people, and we think, well, there's persecution, there's all sorts of things that the devil might attempt to impose upon us to discourage us. But I think one of his most common and effective weapons is a false sense of self-sufficiency. The devil simply lets us be comfortable. And what happens when God's people are comfortable? They forget the Lord. We see it again and again and again in, in, under the Old Covenant, don't we? Israel. That's why God said to Israel, when you enter in the land that I'm giving you, remember the Lord your God. It's, you're going, it's going to be flowing with milk and honey. Things are going to be good. You're going to be comfortable and you're going to be tempted to forget that you desperately need me. You're going to be tempted to think that you are strong when you're actually you are weak. So in order for us to be people of prayer, we must not be people of self-sufficiency. We must be people who are aware of our weaknesses and who are regularly acknowledging them before God. It's not an easy thing to always be aware of your weakness. But it's absolutely necessary to being strong in the power of the Lord and His might rather than your own. It's only when we are aware of our own weaknesses and our own sins that we see our need for God. That's why, as a, as a side note, that's why it's so important for us to confess our sins to one another as a body. This is something that concerns me, not, not about your congregation per se, but about the broader Reformed world, that there can be a tendency for us to want to put on a facade and an air with one another to, to make it seem as if we've got it all together because we're afraid of everyone knowing we're actually sinners. And I'm not saying we should wallow in our sin. You see that happen at some churches where sin is no big deal. Oh, we're all broken. We're all sinners. And here we are playing in the mud. We want to absolutely avoid that because Jesus never tells us to wallow in our sin. 
But at the same time, saints, unless we're being honest with one another about our sin and saying, don't be fooled by this tie for 30 seconds. You know what I mean when I say that, right? Don't be fooled by this tie. I look real nice right up here. And that's good. I should. I'm, I'm respecting the word of the Lord. But don't think my heart looks like my suit. You see what I'm saying? And I'll confess it to you. My heart does not look like my suit. My heart's a lot messier than this. That's why I need Jesus. Right? You've got to be able to do that with one another. You've got to be able to confess our sins to one another so that we are reminding one another that we need Christ, that we are weak. And it's when we are mindful of our weakness, we depend upon the Lord. You see that, saints? Confess your sins to one another. That's what God commands us to do, and it's good for us. It's what we need. It's okay to say, I'm weak, and here's how I'm weak. Pray for me, brothers. Hold me accountable. We've got to say it. You've got to. If you don't, it's only going to make you weaker because it's hidden. That's why Paul tells us that we should be praying for all the saints. You notice he says that. Don't pray just for me, but pray for all the saints. Why did Paul say that? Because he knew pretty much all of them. As the evangelist who's traveling around, right? Asia Minor ministering to the Gentiles, he knows them. And he knew, he knew the Corinthians. He knew the Ephesians. He knew the kind of stuff that was going on in their churches. And he knew they were weak. And that they needed prayer. And that they needed to confess their sins to one another. And that they needed to be strong in the power of the Lord and His might. And not relying on themselves instead. And this is why he says, pray for all the saints. Because you're all weak. And you all need to be strong in the Lord. So we need to be praying for one another all the time. I neglect that too. How often do you pray for other Christians? Honestly, don't, don't answer. But I think about it hardly. I do. I do as a pastor. I do pray for the saints. But you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? We should be praying for everyone all the time. Passionately. Believing that God is going to do what we ask of him for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Every Sunday we pray for your church. We try to, that God would bring you the right man at the right time to, to be your pastor. And we'll continue to do so. Now notice this. This is the second thing. The first thing was our dependency upon the Holy Spirit and recognition of our own weakness. Paul asked for prayer for himself. And this is the last point. He asked for prayer for himself. Why did he ask for prayer for himself? Namely, for boldness in proclaiming the gospel. We see that in verses 19 and 20. That's why Paul wanted them to pray for him. He wanted to be bold in his gospel preaching. It's understandable why Paul wanted boldness in his, in his preaching. Because he, at this point, when he wrote Ephesians, as far as we know, he was in chains under house arrest. So there was probably a temptation for Paul to become timid. Because he was living with a guard there every day, most likely. Sitting there in chains. And all that it would have taken, perhaps, for Paul to be delivered from those chains would be to recant the faith or to agree to shut his mouth in regard to the gospel. So we, we get a hint here that Paul was probably living with constant temptation to be silent. And that's why he prays for boldness in preaching the gospel. He understood two things. First, that boldness is necessary to preaching the gospel. And also, secondly, that prayer is necessary to exercising godly boldness. Now, in Greek, to speak boldly meant 
what it means in English to speak with courage, confidence, and frankness, to speak plainly and confidently. That's what Paul tells, that's what it meant to preach boldly, to speak boldly. Now, why does proclaiming the gospel require boldness? Well, remember what Paul just said about spiritual warfare in the full armor of God. When you share the gospel, you are wielding the sword of the Spirit. You are engaging in spiritual combat. So as with any sword, wielding it in battle effectively requires wielding it with boldness. Remember that, saints. In hand-to-hand combat back in the Middle Ages when you're using a sword, or in Old Testament times, biblical times, to use a sword effectively, you must use it with courage. A coward with a sword, a, a sword in the hands of a coward is useless because he's simply going to flee from the battle and the sword is not going to be put to good use. So in order for us to use the word of God well, it requires boldness. What does that look like to, to preach the word boldly? Well, for starters, it means being unashamed of the gospel and sharing it with grace and frankness. And that is why prayer is necessary to boldly proclaiming the gospel. Paul asked for prayer because he recognized that he personally did not possess enough strength to be bold. It's it's okay for us to admit that sense. We need to admit it. We need to admit, I in my own strength do not have what it takes to effectively proclaim the gospel. I, as a fallen man, nine times out of ten, will play the coward in my own strength. Why is it okay to admit that? So that we will recognize our courage, our boldness, does not reside within us, but within the Lord. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. He tells us there that he proclaimed the gospel and the power of God that was at work in him, and not according to his own might. He says that very explicitly. And so it is through prayer that we depend upon God rather than ourselves. It's through prayer we look to God and are strengthened by His might so that we are then emboldened to preach the gospel. If we are neglecting prayer, then we are going to be relying on our own strength. And when we are relying on our own strength, we will quickly grow weak and timid because of our frailty as fallen creatures. So we must not rely on our own strength in proclaiming the gospel in our day-to-day lives. We must not rely on our own strength. Yes, you want to prepare. You want to study. And do as much as you can. But it's important also to understand you don't need to be an R.C. Sprawl in order to share the gospel. You don't need to be an ordained elder in order to effectively be bold in proclaiming the gospel. What you need to be, who you need to be in order to proclaim the gospel is a Christian who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and who understands the gospel and is able to competently explain it, even simply, to the world. That's all that's required for you to boldly proclaim the gospel. Not in dependency upon your own strength, not in dependency upon your own intellectual intellectual gifts, and also not in fear of your perceived lack of intellectual gifts, perhaps but in dependency upon the sufficiency of God's power at work in you. If your faith, if your confidence through prayer is grounded in God and not in yourself, then you will be equipped and empowered to be a bold proclaimer of the gospel. 
And you should ask God to make you into that. I try to get away with this all the time. Well, evangelism's not my gift. I'm a shepherd. I'm a preacher. I like to hide in my office and study books, please. I can't get away with that. We're all called to share the gospel. Some are better at it than others. But we're all called to it. And we're all called to do it boldly. And if we're going to do that, we have to be people of prayer who are looking to God and not to ourselves. So another question, or another point, if you're not sharing the gospel boldly, then you are not praying enough. Now, am I saying to you, you need to be out in the street corner here and howl every other day? That's not what I'm saying to you. I'm saying that you need to learn how to depend upon God. I need to learn how to depend upon God and then ask him for opportunities to boldly declare the gospel and that he will provide those opportunities in his providence. The thing that's important is that when those opportunities come, we take them and we not back away. We not make an excuse for ourselves. Because we know when those opportunities are there, and when they are brought to us by God's providence, we need to step into them in faith, in dependency upon his power, and not upon ourselves. Even if it's some professor from U of M, who you know is a raging atheist, and, but here he is. Should I say something? Are you a Christian? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Then proclaim the gospel. Boldly. Think about it, Saints. Who did Jesus send up against the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin? Did he raise up a bunch of other guys as PhDs? No, he took a bunch of illiterate, for the most part, fishermen. And I'm not saying that we're all a bunch of illiterate fishermen. No, absolutely not. we got to leg up on the apostles in that, in, that, in that regard. Don't allow your own weakness to get in the way of being a bold proclaimer of the gospel. So where should we start? And I'll conclude with this. Where should... I start. Where should you start? Let's start here. Don't talk yourself out of being bold. Don't talk yourself out of it. Don't make excuses for yourself. Don't tell yourself that you're too timid or shy to share the gospel or that it doesn't suit your personality. Here's a shocker, all right? It's not about you. And it's not about me. It's not about your personality or about your weaknesses. And it's not about your comfort. And it's not about those things for me, for me either. It is about the glory of God and his power working in you, saints. We have been bought at a price. We are not our own. So even though we may not think it suits our personality, our giftedness, or whatever, it doesn't matter. That doesn't enter into the equation. Because we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the Most High, who has purchased us by the blood of his own Son. And he has said, disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And the only way we can do that effectively, saints, is through prayer and learning to be strong in the power of the Lord and his might rather than looking to ourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the intercession of your Son before your presence on our behalf, that he always lives to intercede for us and therefore is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. We thank you for Christ's intercession. Lord, we also thank you for the intercession of the Holy Spirit, 
who intercedes for us in prayer, so that even when we don't know how we ought to pray, the Spirit intervenes in our behalf, Lord, so that our requests are made plain before you, Father. Lord, teach us to be people of prayer, people who are dependent upon you and the power of your might and not dependent upon ourselves, And Father, as we learn to depend upon you and the power of your might through your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to become bold proclaimers of the gospel. And that when you bring those opportunities to us, that we will gladly and willingly take hold of them with our confidence, not within ourselves, but within you and your power. Father, we ask you that you would now teach us how we should pray. Lord taught his disciples. Saints, as we prepare to partake in the Lord's Supper, let us meditate for a moment on the sure foundation of our faith. Consider that the foundation upon which our faith rests is this. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. 2 Corinthians 5.19 And this, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. 1 Peter 2.24 Likewise, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 In one word, the great pillar of our Christian hope is substitution. Jesus offering up himself as a true propitiating sacrifice in our place. Jesus being made sin that we could, for us so that we would be made righteousness of God through him. The Son of God bearing the wrath of God instead of us. Jesus substituting himself for us is the foundation of our faith. And here at this table we are reminded of the sureness of this foundation. Just as lasting as this sacrament has been over the generations, just as real as the bread and wine are to us, so also is the lasting surety of our faith. Here we rest on this foundation. We rejoice in it. We hold tightly to it. And we proclaim it. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. His broken body and shed blood is given for us. Let us then partake of this meal with joy and gratitude knowing our faith is on a firm foundation, as firm as the throne of God in heaven itself. Christ's body, broken for us. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.